Hey guys, welcome back to the Elevate HD podcast. This is episode four and we have on today Luke Miller. Um, Luke Miller himself is a competitive bodybuilder. He has a master's degree in exercise science. He is a prep coach. He's the owner of No Switch Fitness and he's also the host of the No Switch Fitness podcast. And he himself is a mentor and an educator in his own right. So I really wanted to get him on to kind of pick his brains about all the considerations he would make for getting someone in the perfect position to start a prep and be a really have a really successful prep, I thought would be a very interesting topic to discuss with him. So welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I really, I really had a couple of good conversations about this topic recently with other people, and I think it's missed, not done very well for a lot. So I think it's something important to kind of highlight and like to set a prep up very well. Yeah, I agree because in previous, I've done two seasons before and I've kind of just whacked myself into a deficit and haven't actually thought through any sort of setup or schedule or routine or anything. I just kind of went for it. So I think yeah. having more of a strategic approach to it would be quite wise. <laughs> so it'd be good to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, what you'll see a lot of times too with that situation is like this lack of response kind of off the initial push. Um, you'll kind of see some resistance with like moving into that deficit and really trying to gain just the cardiovascular adaptations just from re-implementing cardio to the level that you do as part of that deficit. And so when you kind of start to map it out across a competitive year, you can have that in-between phase to really take care of that lull period so that the prep is productive across the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's like, it's really common for people to kind of go from you know, the peak off season right into a deficit. And then you end up slashing so many calories to get into a deficit that you just don't, you can barely function. You're just not adapted to it at all. So I think having this kind of transitionary phase where you're almost like prepping to prep. Yeah. Very smart sure. way to go about it so that you're not, you don't get this massive shock, both physically and mentally when you throw yourself into this big deficit and everything changes. Uh, because I think it's really common in off season to get a bit lazy to get a bit unproductive to not have a set schedule so this is kind of the time to kind of get all that back in action have a routine have a structure and kind of mentally prepare yourself for being as rigid as you will need to be in a prep situation for sure so I know you wanted to start with like some some coaching considerations yeah to kind of kick it off and then we'll kind yeah of so these days I think a lot of people will have a coach during off season but I know a lot of people that don't um, so when selecting a coach for prep, like what kind of things would you consider and would you ever advise someone to prep themselves or coach themselves? Um, I think it's few and far between the people who can be objective enough to prep themselves. Um, this is also coming from a guy who talks to a human who preps themselves every single day and John. <laughs> so like I, I understand the objectivity that it takes, um, but there are a few that will be able to do that themselves. Typically, if the prep yourself consideration is on the table, like having someone in your group be a second eye is always good. Like John has a couple of us that kind of give us his, our opinions on like his prep when he's prepping himself. But at the end of the day, he's making his own decisions. Right. So for the prep yourself crowd, like the considerations within that would be just making sure that you're tracking data making sure you have that data available for whoever is going to be in your circle as your second eye to kind of look at that and then allow them to uh, 
be open to the objective information that they give you because um, you're going to be looking at the objective data, but you will be slightly skewed from an emotional standpoint. So it's always good to have that. Now for choosing a prep coach, um, one of the big things I would look for is a kind of a two pronged approach. So where are you physically and where are you psychologically? And that's always the question I'm asking um, kind of heading into a prep for someone. And when you're looking for someone to kind of help with the contest prep, um, the organization of what each portion of that prep is going to look like is a really important factor to kind of make sure that that coach is going to be able to take that into consideration. Because if you kind of just finished off this peak all season phase, blood glucose is high, blood pressure may be trending high. We've had compounds in for a little bit and someone's telling you that you're good to go straight into a contest prep. There's uh, a misnomer or not a misnomer. It's a, uh, wrong way to approach the start of contest prep in my opinion and we need to be able to have someone who has the objectivity that's going to say hey you need to wait because the start of your prep now is not going to be productive and not going to be conducive overall from a health perspective as if you waited four six eight weeks so um when you're looking for that have that in mind of like what have you been doing make sure you present that data to the coach before you start a prep. And then when you look and picking it, there's a couple of things you can look at. Like, what do their clients look like? What do their operating systems looks like? Do you feel like they communicate well with you? Because at the end of the day, coaching is all about communication and attention to detail. And if their system doesn't allow for that in the way that you want to do that, then it might not be a good fit. And so there's a lot of people who do very good work. I think just finding the system that works for you is kind of where picking a coach often happens. Yeah, it definitely depends because like myself, I love data trackings. I love spreadsheets and loads of numbers and figures and formulae all over the spreadsheet. Yeah. And I have other friends who just want WhatsApp communication. They just want a PDF plan and they don't want to fill out any data. So it definitely depends on what works best for you as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a big thing too, because like as much as coaches can have adaptable systems to an extent, there is like one core process that they like to operate in. And if you're not do, if you don't do very well in that core process, you're almost doing yourself a disservice because you're, you're just not getting the most out of the coach unless there's like iterations to it, which is what I do. I have my core process and I have iterations to it based on like the way someone communicates. Um, and I'll actually use the, if I, if I get a feeling that I'm not exactly sure how someone communicates off the cuff, I'll use something like an Enneagram to kind of get an idea of where their psychological profile is and then set up the communication system based off that. But it all kind of falls under the same system. And then that's going to set the constructs of all the information we're going to talk about today of like where someone physically, where someone psychologically, what are we needing to consider from that? Because this phase honestly is how we avoid, in my opinion, like, the post-show phase being absolutely horrendous, struggling really heavily with psychological food focus, things like that is kind of how we do this beginning portion of prep. Yeah, definitely. I think it's undervalued uh, at best to say that this, this kind of prep phase to prep you for the prep is yeah. something that needs to be considered. So once we've selected the coach, we're happy with the coach, we need to kind of look at timelines um so if you start from looking at what your potential show date will be kind of working back from that 
how do you know how much time to give yourself? And I know that will depend on so many different factors, like what's your current body yeah. percentage and what division are you doing? How lean do you need to get? Um, but what kind of things do you think about there? Yeah. So for me, it's like, what's an average weight of weight loss for a client? So it's going to be somewhere in that, depending on the total body weight, around one to two and a half pounds a week. Typically, it's kind of closer to that one, one and a half for most. Um, obviously, females will be on the lower end of that. Males will be mid to higher end of that, depending on the client. Um, so take that into consideration. Have an estimation of how much body fat you have on you and what it's going to take to get to show shape. So we can do this via pictures. We can do this via caliper sites. We can do this via a couple different ways. If you're lucky enough to have like a, a DEXA available, that's fucking fantastic. But not everybody has that. So then we're going to create a timeline based on that average rate of progress, right? And so what I like to do is not build the timeline where let's say a client has 25 pounds to lose, where the duration of prep is exactly 25 pounds of weight loss across the duration of prep. I like to build in like three to three and a half extra weeks into that timeline. Reason being is not every prep is going to be completely smooth sailing. You're going to hit some road bumps. Um, you might have some deloads you need to plan in there just to pull off stress. And honestly, like for most people, like the 25 pound mark is a little bit of a low ball for, for most people. Right. So if you start to extrapolate that out, like if you're losing a pound and a half a week, like you're looking at some pretty long preps, if you're having to lose 30 to 35, 40 pounds, which is kind of where this interim phase happens, right. Where, if you're productive in this interim phase, which we should probably go into what causes that, but if you're productive in this interim phase, it sets the stage for you to hit that timeline to a T. So always, always mapping out a rate of weight loss is estimated. Now, if you've done this before, like you've prepped before, you can probably use previous data on like the rate of weight loss that you've seen in the past and preps that have gone well. If you haven't, then my, my, my suggestion would be to worst case scenario it because the biggest thing that ruins preps is faulty timelines and having to rush it at the end. So I always kind of like worst case scenario it, but that's kind of like the start and the framework um, for like the actual prep start date. Now the transition from off season to prep, the question needs to be asked like what stops the push up in the first place? Was it blood glucose management? Was it blood pressure? Was it, what was it, right? We need to fix that within this interim phase. So for most people that's gonna involve pulling PDs down to baseline, we're kind of resolving this. And this interim phase is an opportunity to gain the cardiovascular adaptations that are gonna be necessary for prep. So a lot of times what you'll see is these people who all season all the way directly into prep, it's like you start prep and it's like, where's the progress? Where's the progress? Where's the progress? And then finally they start taking it off. Um, a lot of times I kind of contribute that to the cardiovascular adaptations that are needed because you may have had cardio in their plan, but the likelihood of them like doing it all, especially when you get to like stuffing food down your face phase and just getting up and going up the stairs is hard the likelihood that it's being done to the level it needs to be is probably not very high. Now, step counts and things like that are where I'm trying to push a client for a prep. So hopefully we're kind of moving cardiovascular activity in for the interim phase 
and then we're moving it towards steps for the start of prep. But we need to gain those adaptations because if we don't, we're going to really miss out on a productive three to four weeks right off the right off the cuff of prep. Yeah, and it's I think the cardiovascular adaptations, but also if you don't have that transition phase, I think the first couple of weeks are going to be trying to reinstate those habits again. So you're going to wait a few weeks just slipping up, making a few mistakes, you know, forgetting to do this, that, or the other, not quite hitting your step target. All these things are going to build up and you may not see any sort of progress in the first couple of weeks just because you haven't had those habits kind of solidified yet. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think where we can kind of ground a lot of the habits formation is in the check-in process. So how much habit formation a client will have will kind of be very telltale based on how they fill out their tracker. So my, my tracker that I have set up for my clients, it kind of goes through all the metrics you would track during a prep expectation for them is like in an all season to be tracking these as well. So I get a pretty good idea how well people are actually doing these things. I will say one of the biggest things from a habit formation standpoint that I like to lynch people upon within this like interim phase is going to be sleep wake times. So if they're not really good at being consistent with going to bed at a consistent time, having that routine going into bed, which we can talk about if we need to, um, similar wait times. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Are we hydrating, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If that's not in place, the rest of the day kind of hinges off of that. So we need to kind of make sure that that's in place and then kind of phase into whatever it is we need to be doing to get this person back, which a lot of times is going to be kind of a health concern thought process, but which we'll dive into psychological in a bit. But uh, from a physical aspect, it's going to be steps, making sure we're consistently hitting those. If there's cardio in play, which I do like it in that interim phase to kind of get people moving. Um, and then just like a net inflammation type of a standpoint, like what, what's all in play that may be causing some issues from a oxidative stress standpoint. And then what can we do to mitigate that across this phase to set up a productive start point for prep? Yeah, that's a good point is when I started my off season this year, I joined a new coach and he kept my cardio in and I just never stopped I just kept going I never missed a session and that's been the best thing for me because it gives me a reason to get up it gives you a reason to go and do my cardio and to start the day and that kind of it's not even just the cardio itself it's the habit that has really helped me keep some sort of routine and off season because otherwise there's just no reason to get up <laughs> so. people people always wonder why they're more productive during prep and it's probably just because your morning and your night routine is the same exact thing every night because you just don't have the don't have the energy to really put up with anything else, you know? Yeah. So um, if we can get them being productive in that, in that portion, which is why kind of to your point, like in all seasons, I like to keep a little cardio in play, not only for like blood pressure management, cardiovascular outcomes, but for that habit routine, right? Like I'd rather someone be waking up six, seven days a week doing something little than just kind of fucking off, excuse yeah. my friend <laughs> for like three or four days and not doing anything, you know? And, um doesn't mean that you can't have those vacations where you might not be doing it right but yeah I definitely think that that's an important aspect of it yeah I agree then when we're thinking about this transitionary phase in terms of nutrition and energy balance if we're mm. coming from oftentimes quite a substantial surplus that people will be trying to use to to gain weight and um, moving into this phase before prep 
would you recommend either minimizing the surplus or even moving into a maintenance phase of calories before the prep? Yeah, so this is interesting. So John and I joke that this phase is called like the gain-taining phase. <laughs> um, basically like the thought process, and this is kind of where what stopped your off-season progress becomes really important is the nutrition side. Because if we're seeing like really high elevated blood glucose values with uh, intervention in place, so like Lantus is at 20 IUs already, metformin's in play, things like that, it's probably going to be a little bit more of a nutritional consideration to drop calories down into that uh, pre-prep phase than it is going to be anything else from a cardiovascular standpoint. So as a general rule of thumb, um, you will need to pull down from your peak nutrition load. A couple reasons for that. Um, one is going to be PEDs are dropping out. We know nutrient partitioning is going to lower a bit with the PEDs. The whole point of this phase is to lower the net stress on the body. So for most people, peak off-season food intakes are a stressor in themselves, especially from a GI perspective. So we will be taking a moderate pull for that. Um, and then also too, from like a uh, health markers perspective, I would rather see someone clip off a couple pounds within that phase, get everything kind of back to normalize, but not at a rate that's going to be detrimental to what we've, what we've built in that surplus phase. So for most people um, at the start, it'll be a pull enough. And here's where it gets complicated. Cause like PDs have that influence on RAAS, which is going to, uh, for those who don't know, that's renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. So it's going to have a net fluid balance component to it. So you're going to pull PEDs. We're going to see from a lot of people weight drop because of that. So when we do this food pull, like, and you react, if you react to the first two weeks, a lot of times it's not the food pull that did it. It's the pull of the PEDs. So we're pulling people closer to maintenance here mainly just to get them back to this baseline. And then I'll even go so far as like maybe even pull into a deficit, depending on where they're at relative to what I want them starting prep at. Um, but for most, somewhere in that maintenance, the slight surplus, and then pulling food from the nutrient category that's the most detrimental to what caused them to stop all season in the first place. Mm. Nine times out of 10, it's going to be a carbohydrate load that we're, we're dropping from. Yeah. And then would you pay any consideration to like in terms of blood glucose management and stuff to food selection or like food quality? Or would you implement some sort of meal plan or template or structure to give them a yeah. guide than just kind of, you know, if it fits your mouth approach? <laughs> <laughs> if it fits your mouth. Oh, man, that's the greatest. Uh, that's good. I'm going a, I'm to a take that. I'm going to use that. I didn't um, make it up. I wish I did. <laughs> Can't copyright that. Uh, so the question was like, am I moving people into like a more of a structured template? So to kind of start, um, I use the nutrition template that I use is what is called a dual meal plan. So it maps the meal plan out to the left, but it also on the right maps out all of the macronutrients for every food item in the plan. So the expectation there is like hit your macros every day all season, hit your macros every day. Um, kind of have some sort of structure for yourself where you're pretty much eating the same foods most of the time. But if you don't want a bagel and you want oatmeal, like go ahead and make your sub, right? Now with that, peak off-season loads a lot of times are going to include some process-based foods. So we're looking at like fruit juices, uh, cereals, whatever. 
My first pull is always going to be those food options. Um, remember, we're coming back to like a net drop in stress. More processed foods have multiple things to consider, but from a, from a gut perspective, like the amount of fermentation that's happening and net overall inflammation within the gut lining, that's going to be one of the biggest ones that we're kind of pulling a lot of these foods for. Um, so that, and then we're pulling it for the calorie amounts as well and trying to get them back to that baseline. So am I moving people to a more structured template? I wouldn't say it's a more structured template because it's still the same document. Um, what I would say, it's probably more of a, Hey, it's time to rein in the food options a little bit. Like we were getting away with the rice crispy treat bars and the little trinkets here and there. Right. Um, let's, let's try to pull that out and start to get a base digestive response because especially for my clientele who deal with IBS like symptoms, which is a whole idiopathic diagnosis in itself, but, um, it's so important to set the baseline of a digestive function because that can be a rate limiter within itself. Right. So when you look at like what becomes a rate limiter in prep, a lot of times it's going to be. GI distress, stress management, something along those lines. So I'm really trying to get someone kind of like you said, the habit formation of consistency on the day to day, where if they need a food sub because they ran out of a food or something, they have it all there just to make it and they can follow the plan. But on the general for the day to day, it's starting to be really much more kind of reined in from a food options perspective. Yeah. And then also like pulling those kind of extra bits and pieces first like the juices and stuff are going to be better in terms of like hunger management and that kind yeah. of thing as well because you want to kind of prioritize your nutrient dense foods and your your higher volume foods that are going to keep you a bit more satiated especially at the very beginning when you don't want to be hungry just yet you want to save that for you know the yeah. of hopefully depends on where the person is right because some of them are dying to feel hungry for the first time in like months depending on how their all season's gone but yeah so that consideration and then also um kind of looking through like the rest of the prep you're trying to want to forecast kind of like where where is food going to land by the end of prep with this initial phase right just to kind of have an idea of like and previous press will help you with this like for me i have a pretty adaptable metabolism so pretty much every prep kind of starts in the lower 5K, upper 4K calorie intake. And then this past prep I did, I was around five weeks out with my training days around like 18, 1700. Wow. So I know, I know the drop's going to be rather large, right? So from a food options perspective, I'm kind of already preparing myself for that and like starting to bring in a little bit more fibrous carbohydrate sources and things along those natures maybe pulling, this is the one that I'll do a lot as well, is uh, intra-workout carbohydrate powder, transition some of that into whole foods throughout the day, and then kind of tick along from there. Yeah, be kind of at the same time, you want to be strategic of when you implement these extra kind of dieting tools, because you don't want to be <laughs> soon until like you really need them later on. So you're trying yeah. to save all these kind of extra tools and hacks until you get further down the line, and it's a real yeah. For most people, we can pretty much keep the foods consistent until we start to get a little bit deeper into prep. Um, I don't really find that I'm changing foods a whole lot outside of pulling those little extra bits. Um, and then the start of prep is kind of where 
people will start asking the questions like what's allowed, what's not, those kinds of things. So can I have a cheat meal? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so that is that. That was the famous question. My first prep, I was allowed a cheat meal like every week, but I definitely would not oh. do that now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that sounds like a dream. Now I went my uh, so my last prep got cut short because my wife ended up trying to go for a pro card for a second time, um, which was like six days out of the show I was going to do. So, um my prep started like 24 weeks out and I didn't have a meal off plan the entire time. Like, and that was like four weeks out. I, I, for myself, it's just something psychologically I don't like to do. I think it, it leads me to more food focus, which is very important to, to understand that this is kind of a part I wanted to touch on within this podcast is where are you psychologically in this phase? So the pre-prep phase needs to be around habit formation from like a, a what are you doing out of the day, but also a habit formation around how you react to food. Mm-hmm. Like, are you going out obsessing over what you're going to order for dinner because you're just needing that meal so bad? Or do you not really care and you're just focusing on the time with friends? Are you obsessing over the clock already where you're looking for your meals and these kinds of things? If I'm seeing some of those subjective data already there, I'm probably extending the time frame in which we have prep because when we look at response to the post-show phase, the duration of psychological distress, nine times out of 10 is probably going to predict the negative outcomes on the back end. So like for, for my clients that do struggle with the food focus, a lot of that pre prep phase is around getting away from that. Mm-hmm. So Strategies to do that are kind of like we talked about trading out some foods for more voluminous food sources. Excuse me, making sure veggie intake is intact because a lot of people get into the off season, they kind of drop off the veggies and they're not there. And then from there, making sure that the last few outings before prep are centered around the activities you're spending with people. And I, I try to really communicate that like, look, like make sure you focus on. Uh, going out, doing something with friends, maybe even have someone else choose the restaurant and not tell you before you go so that you can kind of learn to have that habit where you show up, you order whatever it is you want, and then you, you move on with life. And from a psychological standpoint, if you set that framework, a lot of that sets the rate of prep going into it of like how fast someone will progress because people forget psychological stress is a stressor. There's even data on like for FAH. So um, uh, for like amenorrhea for females, psychological stress can be a primary factor for driving that um, amenorrhea. So we can understand that, you know, we know that for females, the body fat and the lack of resources from a food perspective is the primary, but if the psychological stress is there, then we are definitely going to have more complications as we go through prep. Yeah, uh, like it's always the way when people are about to start prep and they decide to have this like massive blowout just beforehand to like get it all out of their system, but it probably does the opposite where they just fixate on it then after, after. So it's probably not the wisest idea. But yeah, I talked about this with John on the podcast as well as that I kind of tell my clients to, if they're feeling super food focused and they have an event coming up and they're nervous about it, to like use the food kind of as like 
the lubricant of the main event rather than the main event and to see it as like a complementary addition to people and the conversations and everything happening there and it kind of just runs around in the periphery um to kind of see it that way instead of just fixating on what am I going to have what's on the menu you know all about just planning it and organizing it in your head yeah I think uh one thing I've done too with people is like setting your phone down for the event so like putting in your car or something like that because if you're going out to do something and then going to dinner a lot of times you'll see people they're like on their phone looking at the restaurant menu or they're yeah. trying to figure out what restaurant they're going to or whatever they can't even really enjoy the company of the other people so time away from your cell phone is good even if you're a prep coach and you got 800 emails a day and all this yeah. other stuff it's good to sit it down every once in a while you just get your phone buzzing every second of the day yeah, <laughs> yeah it can be hard to enjoy a meal with what's going on you know there's all these people yeah. waiting for you <laughs> absolutely um I think when we look at like the interim phase in general one of the things we haven't touched on is the training perspective yeah so I thought now yeah so most people think of programming in this like accumulation manner okay there's 900 different ways to do accumulation over time that's not the point the point here is typically we're starting at a low point we're driving accumulation up and basically reaching a peak volume, a peak, peak fatigue. We're deloading and kind of restarting the process over. Heading into prep, uh, in my opinion, should be kind of inverse. So we kind of hit this peak volume load at the end of the push and off season. We deload. Where we start that climb again should probably be close to what would be a maximum adaptive volume. So if we're looking at uh, a curve of response on people, it's kind of a little bit closer to the peak response curve from a hypertrophy standpoint. Reason being is prep is a X number of weeks fatigue management. That's all it is. Okay. So when we look at accumulation over time, volume should start to drop across a prep and we can't drop volume across the prep if we're already starting at a low point. Right. So this is where I think the transitionary programming in a prep needs to have a couple factors in consideration. And this is where a lot of people get this wrong. First consideration off the gate, what's happening across a contest prep? Body fat's going down, fatigue's going up, cardiovascular activity's going up. So when we look at exercise selection, internal versus external stability, I really like a rotational aspect for me to lean on. So to give an example for the, uh, the listener to understand, Leg day, let's say the two main squat patterns are a pendulum squat and a, a safety bar squat. So safety bars, internal, pendulums, external. As we go through the prep, waist size is going to go down quite significantly. So the capacity to create pressure within a brace is going to go down quite a bit as well. So as we get into these last confines of prep, 10, 9, 8 weeks, because we have that rotational pattern there, we can just pull out the SSB and let them ride the pendulum the rest of prep. Transfer that across the rest of your body parts and you have a pretty much a model to kind of map out programming for a contest prep for most people. Most people aren't considering that factor. And secondarily, once the volume level is set, my opinion, and this is just the way that I prefer to approach it, Proximity to failure needs to be rather consistent. So major compounds, 
one RIR to zero. Isolation work most of the time is going to be zero. Using the reps and reserve as an opportunity to have a deload and prep. Where a lot of people are kind of programming these models that accumulate in reps and reserve as we go across time. Not my preferred programming model. I've used it a couple of times with certain people, but when we look at a contest prep, you're throwing in more variables every week. The less variables we have to juggle, the more likely we're going to create a predictable response. When it comes to programming, that's kind of where a lot of my thoughts starts to go. Is like, how predictable can I make this where I know exactly what's going on and I can make an adjustment that's going to make that tick to let someone take the next step in their prep. And for most people, that's going to be kind of around the consistency in volume level, being able to pull volume, reps and reserve being consistent across a lot of the prep and or proximity to failure. Um, and then having the opportunity to make movement swaps that aren't introducing a new movement because we can look at basic neurological understanding from a skill acquisition perspective. It's going to take someone four five, six weeks, depending on their skill level, to fully adapt to a new movement. So you're throwing a new movement at someone 10, 11 weeks out. They're probably not adapted to it until they're about four. Really big opportunity to drive a lot of stress and a lot of fatigue. So we pre-plan it and kind of make sure that's a part of the programming before we start prep. Yeah. And like, as you said, like with a lot of free weight movements with barbells and dumbbells, there's kind of an inherent lack of stability there. Um, when in off season, you may be able to, you know, handle that because you have the energy and you have the strength, you have the mass on you to deal with it. But as you get leaner, as you have less energy coming in and your fatigue builds up, you're going to be less able to stabilize yourself while also focusing on, you know, providing that stimulus and, and generating that force that you need. Um, so it's probably a good idea to try and control the variables you can, like your support and your restraint and all the kind of stuff so that you can focus on just, you know, creating as much stimulus as possible and, and trying to retain as much tissue as you can. Yeah. So that's a slippery slope of a thought process as well. So there's always going to be what I call the vegetables and the spaghetti sauce. You know, your mom puts the vegetables and spaghetti sauce, blends it up so you don't realize you're eating yeah. veggies. Um, there's going to be movement patterns that are going to be that in a program. So the, the classic example that I give is like most bodybuilders lack some sort of femoral internal rotation. Okay. We know that. So why don't we introduce a pattern that is going to bias them towards more internal rotation capacity? This is where the contralateral loaded RFE, so rear foot elevated split squat, is a very good pattern to have within a program to kind of allow someone to gain capacity and or access to these positions that will transfer into their other patterns being more productive. What I see a lot of times in a prep is those are the first to fly out of a window. And I think that when we look at like injury prevention, what we're doing to prep for a session from a functional standpoint, and then these vegetables and spaghetti sauce, while the amount that we're doing them might reduce, they need to always stay in because they're probably the reason that you're staying put together across a prep. And people just look at a movement for a movement and they don't look at a movement for what it may provide in a benefit elsewhere. And that's like the, the RFE, for example, like you can change its effect just by changing how you load it. Whether you do it bilaterally, contralaterally, ipsilaterally with a barbell, et cetera, 
So we need to be looking at those vegetables and spaghetti sauce because injury risk across prep is just going to keep rising and rising and rising and rising as body fat goes down. So if we're not doing those things that are going to keep our capacity pretty, pretty well intact, you're, you're setting yourself up for an injury pretty fast. Mm. Yeah. So when you're thinking about rotating exercises, you have to, you know, remember that exercises are not in a vacuum. They all translate into other exercises and they're all connected in some way. So you can't just see them in isolation. You have to look at the bigger picture of your whole training program. Yes. 100% nailed it. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, that's where it gets tricky. That's why, like I love programming, but it can be quite intricate at times when you get it really into it and you immerse yourself. Well, into it. The problem is the more you learn, the more intricate it gets. It's yeah, like, it's a, it's it's like, I'm getting better at this, but there's more to consider. <laughs> right. So uh, you just kind of like miss the days of just like, fuck it. Let's just go train, you know, um, deadlift done. <laughs> <laughs> just go. Um, I don't think I could get under a squat bar right now. It'd break me, but um, I think when we kind of look at like the question that's going to come up is like, okay, we know this, but what's the expectation from a performance perspective within training across the prep and let's set some frameworks from context here, like a natural athlete, it's going to be keeping progressions in as long as possible, maintaining performance. And then you're going to see a detriment, like pretty much just accept the fact that top set loads probably six weeks and in are not overly going to happen. Mm -hmm. Now that conversation changes a little bit when we have geared athletes. Um, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox that we can use towards the end of a prep that will aid in the ability to still manage a lot of those loads. What I will find, however, is that because output is so high on a per set basis for geared athletes, volume is a very, very dangerous slippery slope to kind of go down from a fatigue management standpoint. Mm -hmm. So the exposure to these higher threshold patterns might have to be reduced a little bit more in nature relative to a natural athlete, which may can kind of sound backwards because the natural athlete doesn't have the gear to help with the cover capacity, but most time natural athletes not outputting at the same level that a geared athlete is as well. So it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, when we look at mapping that out across the entire contest prep, um, we need to kind of consider that pressing is going to be the first thing to go for most people. Body fat is going to be pretty market marketably uh, beneficial from a leverage standpoint within pressing, especially the higher in the exposure range we go. So all that means is like the more into an overhead position that we go, the more likely it's going to be that performance is going to be detrimented. Understanding that might have you place the main compounds for those higher exposure range patterns in in or in external stability patterns so smith machines shoulder press machines things like that where because it gives you a little bit more runway to possibly keep the progressions ticking a little bit longer because we know that's the first thing to go most guys and girls like they have the mentality for it if you put them in a leg day they're gonna figure out a way to get better for most leg patterns like leg presses and things like that pressing is like because of the leverage component especially as body fat gets low it's going to be a lot harder this is also where you need to consider if you're running a specialization cycle in all season that's going to have to change and this is something i didn't touch on before but we probably should so the higher an experience level you go the more specialized the programs will get now 
with specialized programming, it requires quite a bit of recovery capacity to be able to manage the fatigue and or frequency slash volume that you're training this certain body part. As you go into a contest prep, that interim phase, that phase between all season prep should move you away from a specialized cycle into a more balanced program setup due to the fact that tissue retention is going to be the primary thing that we're considering across a prep. With that being said, the higher frequency that we're using in the specialized cycles is more likely to lead to injury profiles as well. Also, you talked about movements not being in a vacuum, inter interacting with the rest of the program across. Two sets of an overhead press in the off season is going to be a lot less impactful four days from now than two sets of overhead press within a contest prep setting. So this is where picking the patterns and the planes of movement that we're doing need to be very specific so that we're not getting overused patterns over time. So these are considerations that people will get away with in an off season. But when you kind of get into that transition prep phase, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to revamp this, which is where unfortunately a lot of people just kind of keep ticking along, which I get because what brought you to the off season is going to bring you through a prep from a, training uh, style of training type of a thought process, but there's a lot of variables that we can change out to make it a little bit better. Yeah. Like there's that sign bite you always hear. It's like what builds the muscle maintains the muscle and people say you have to train the exact same, but they fail to consider all the other factors that go into training both in the gym and outside of the gym when you're in a contrast prep. So it's not that simple, unfortunately. Yeah. And I've even found like, modality of cardio can influence the volume levels at which a person can handle when we talk about quads relative to glutes and hamstrings right so like things that are going to have a little bit more impact across you'll see a lot more uh, detriment to the volume loads that they can handle across a prep relative to lower impact based cardiovascular activity so Something to consider when you're choosing the cardiovascular activity, especially if you're buying pieces for your house. We just went the, the get it all method and we have like five pieces in our garage now. So um, <laughs> that way we don't ever have to leave the house if we want to do cardio. But it's also something to like look into when you talk about managing a prep and going into this transition phase. It's like, what modality of cardio do I want to keep across the rest of the phase or across the prep phase? Let's use that within the interim phase as well. So what kind of cardio would you recommend? Like, Because I know people often say, well, a lot of people say that you need the Stairmaster to get your legs shredded, which is definitely an old wives tale or whatever. Um, but a lot of coaches don't recommend the Stairmaster because they think it is very high impact and can negatively impact your leg training. Yeah, um, I think there's value in a Stairmaster, but only in small doses. Mm. Um, my preferred cardio method is steps. Now, that being said, not everybody can get shredded off the steps. Yeah. So when we look at other cardiovascular activity modalities, um, ellipticals are nice just because of the lowered impact. We can get the heart rate elevation. Downfall there is if you have like hip complex issues, a lot of times you'll see like QL flare ups, lower back pumps, feet going numb, things like that. Um, so if elliptical is not an option, you're typically going towards either treadmill, bike, or Stairmaster. Bike is nice because it is a little bit less from an impact perspective. However, I found that 
I mean, I'm sure you've done this. You've gotten on a bike and you go and do a 30 minute cardio session and your quads are more pumped than an actual quad day. Right. (laughs) And it's like, you wake up, you like, you take your pictures for Instagram when you get off the bike, not when, (laughs) not when you finish your leg day. So from a management of like performance perspective, too much bike, I think can be pretty detrimental to leg training. Um, So what I do for most is some sort of scaling of cardiovascular choice across a week. So I'll give an example. So Nick is one of my clients. He, we train, he's my training partner. Um, we train legs on Sunday. So what we do is Monday, Tuesday, we do Stairmaster. Wednesday, Thursday, we do bike. And then Friday, Saturday, leading into legs, we'll do the lowest impact that we have available to us. So like incline tread or elliptical or whatever we can get our hands on. Um, depending on where he's at. Um, but we kind of scale the impact across the week leading into the leg day. That way it's, it's less likely to impact the output on that, on that leg day. Yeah. Yeah. I think the main considerations I have with using a treadmill is number one, you don't want to like double count your steps. So I used to have to like see how many steps I did on the treadmill and then subtract them from my step counts so that I could do them to reach myself. <laughs> <laughs> this is my scientific brain um and then also I struggle to because I get um like a heart rate like beats per minute target and I struggle to reach that with just like a fast-paced walk like I, it takes me a bit more of strenuous activity to reach that beats per minute so that were, they were the main two issues I had with the treadmill yeah and that's actually a good point like you've seen the people like doing cardiovascular activity and it gets them moving and then like you get into prep and it's like these five, 10 minute bumps don't have the same impact that five, 10 minute bumps at the start have a lot of that is how much they've adapted to cardiovascular activity and not being able to get that heart rate elevated. So what I prefer is like writing down the intensity at which you're doing this cardiovascular activity. So like what level stairmaster are you on? What speed on the elliptical are you going? What RPMs on a bike are you going? And we can use that to kind of say, Hey, like let's make this time addition, but let's also make this intensity addition so that we're getting that heart rate elevation there. For so most people, like if they don't want to do that much detail, just seeing if your heart rate gets elevated is fine. Um, and you can kind of pace yourself based off that. Um, but that is something to consider across a prep as well. And I will tell you, so this was the first prep for me myself that I strictly did steps for. And I was really surprised at how responsive I was. At five weeks out, I was pretty much almost ready, um, which is not normal for me. Um, so when we look at like client to client, take into consideration the recovery capacity perspective and how much you take with the cardio, because the more you take here, the less you have here, right? Um, for the example I gave with Nick, like he is a cardio bunny, which is unbelievable to find <laughs> a cardio bunny, especially a 260 pound guy. That's a like cardio bunny. He loves it. So he does it all off season. So for him, like cardio is not that impactful. So for him, it's just like pretty easy to just scale it across the week and introduce those harder variations because he's not taking away from his baseline. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and the other thing in terms of steps, I think you need to consider more so than regular, like traditional cardio is like the person's profession and and their day-to-day life, because for example, someone like myself who has like a full-time day job, it might not be as possible to get all those steps in as someone who has their own, they're self-employed, they work from home and they can kind of fit that in as and when. 
it's something I keep meaning to buy like a walking pad so I can like walk and work at the same time because that'll be very handy. <laughs> but uh, at the moment, I just have to wander around rainy Manchester to get my steps. <laughs> I love it. Oh my goodness! Go 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 visit FLF, get on the treadmill, take a couple steps, and then walk back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it it kind of if I have a meeting, it's not really ideal. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the time consideration is important, right? And that's kind of maybe. I had to kind of do this just uh, without thinking about it. There's a lot of times where I make those cardio progressions is like, what can this person handle? Mm. Is this person's already waking up to do steps at like 4.15 in the morning? Adding another 2,000 steps to their count is just going to have them wake up at four. It's like, why don't we just implement some cardiovascular activity that can probably get done while they're at the gym and then go about their day, right? And sleep across a prep and even the pre-prep phase is probably one of the most important things to keep intact because lower body fat gets the more skewed our signaling pathways get from a cortisol perspective everybody's shit starts to go to sleep starts to go to shit so we start to see like this eight and a half hour mark in all season go to like seven and a half seven six and a half six right um and so the more we can kind of allow people to have that bracketed pre-sleep and wake up time be consistent as possible, the better it's going to be. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to get the job done, but it is something to take into consideration what you're using. Yeah, that's, I suppose that's when a time like it's important to communicate with the client as well and say, okay, well, what can you handle right now? Like what would be the least detrimental for me to add in right now and see what they say? Yeah, it's... uh. And I've even used it to the extent of like, where am I taking the most progressions kind of as we phase in? Is it food or activity, right? So um, I think that it's a, it's a missed portion of communication with a client that really should be such a large portion of what we're doing because outside life management is so key to uh, being able to, to, to move forward. Like, um, I, I prepped my wife this last year for Europa and I, uh, she did Europa and then universe, which was a pro qualifier. My stress going into Europa was like so high. Like I never stress peaking people, but when it's your wife, it's a different story. And I was like holding on to weight like crazy. You see it creeping up. And then you hit show weekend and it like plummets. And it's like, well, clearly like some of this life factors are happening. People just aren't ob objective or in tune with what they're doing to kind of see that. So it is important to kind of understand where those variables are. Yeah. And like, that's a good point. Like going into like the transitionary phase again, like for prep, like asking yourself those questions that aren't to do with yeah. training and nutrition. So, you know, what is your home situation like? What's your relationship status like? Are you secure and safe in that? What's your financial situation? You know, is your job stable or like, are you just starting a new job? Because that might not be the best time to start a prep. Um, and all these other lifestyle considerations that will definitely have a massive impact on the success of the prep. Yeah, I think from a budgetary perspective, I'll have this conversation with clients, like plan for the worst case scenario because shit always hits the ceiling fan during a prep. Um, and you're, you're going to want to make sure that it's not a concern for something that you need for prep. Like how many times have we 
wanted needed to pull lab work during a prep to check something check if something's going wrong especially on the female side if we're seeing hpa adaptation um or we have an extra expense come up because our suit doesn't fit us anymore or something along those lines right so the more we can kind of financially prepare the better the prep's going to be and honestly from a life perspective like that's one of the there's multiple reasons but one of the big reasons i'm not prepping this year is because of just some of the life situations that we'll have kind of going on right so very aware of that i'm also aware that i need to improve but I know that it wouldn't be the best prep and I don't want to do it unless I can put my best foot on stage. Yeah. And you have to consider that. Like I, before even lockdowns happened in 2020, I was planning to take the whole year off because I was starting a new job and I just knew that I couldn't give hundred percent to both, like something had to give. And I was willing to kind of invest the time now into, you know, getting comfortable in that job. And once I've kind of established myself in it, then I could start a prep and that could more move to more of a maintenance back burner kind of thing, because it's just really hard to have too many no- new novel things going on during a prep. It's just, and I know people like to be crazy busy during prep and you always take up all these random things to keep yourself going, but sometimes you have to make these choices and prioritize at the time. Yeah, for sure. One thing we, we didn't make very clear to, or I, I didn't was on the timeline building for prep, we're really big fan of kind of having that pre-built. So we know that's in the off season, like where that timeline's at, because it gives someone an objective. And so like make this cute little timeline sheet that's color coded according to the phases. And that way they wake up with a purpose every day from a psychological management standpoint, that gives an athlete a lot of direction. And I think that it's a, it's something that, you know, we'll build timelines for preps, but people won't often do it way out and i think like the even if the show date that you pick is not the one that you end up doing having that on a piece of paper just to execute upon is really important yeah i've started doing that i've made like on my spreadsheet for my clients like a journey mapper where it maps out the whole year it's all color coordinated by what phase you're in are you in a dieting phase massive phase maintenance phase and i find the same because when i've just done linear off seasons with no periodization or anything planned you just you it's really hard to maintain motivation so when you have that end goal you have like phases mapped out you know you're transitioning from one to the other it's much more motivating than just kind of keep gaining keep eating and you know don't stop (laughs) I can and I can say that from experience like right now Emily and I are trying to get pregnant and it's like you don't know that timeline right and so it's like there's a lot of things on my end I have to do to make sure that that happens like, well, shit, like, when is this going to end? Like, it's a great thing. I'm excited for it, but it's also like, like, what am I doing? Like, it's what direction are we going type of a thing? So uh, it's interesting. It's something that I prioritize in this, this last year. It's something I've prioritized a lot more than I had in years before. And I saw a lot of positive dividends from that, just from an athletic performance standpoint for my clients. Yeah. it like the, the value of having them motivated and excited for each next phase makes such a difference than them just getting a bit like it's very easy to get complacent in an off season when you're just trucking on everything's the same you're just eating a lot of food training whereas when you set yeah. the plan ahead of time you can get more excited for it and i'll even i'll even put like when i expect to pull lab work on those people within that which is the important part that we didn't touch on of that transitionary phase because I want them to pre-plan of like having the requisition forms ready, setting aside the money so they know when it's coming and those kinds of things. Um, 
there may be times where you have to pull it beforehand just because something's going on, but um, most of the time it's pretty accurate to when we would need to pull abs. And that way it's not only the motivation of each phase, but of kind of like having that preparedness of like, Hey, like this expense is coming up in the next month. I want to set this aside so that I can make sure that I get this done. Um, and pulling labs within a interim phase is important. So this is the one time that I'll kind of move labs in. Hmm. So for most people, every eight to 14 weeks is pretty acceptable for a lab work, but I want labs as soon as we finish that push. So I can see where the stress went, what markers got skewed. And then pretty much the start of prep a little bit before I'm going to be pulling the markers that were skewed again. Hmm. So like if I'm seeing some major issues from a kidney function standpoint or like not even issues, just the potential for issues, I'm making sure that we're checking that on the, on the back end or if we're checking CBCs or whatever it may be for that client, making sure that it's still in a good spot kind of before we even go into the foray of prepping. Mm-hmm. And do you take blood work during preps as well to kind of just monitor? Yeah, I do actually. Um, client dependent. Uh, so full panels will be a little bit less frequent. A lot of times I'm pulling specific panels um, for either deployment of compounds or a health check. So I like a health check somewhere in the middle. Most people perhaps are between 18 to 24 weeks. So you can kind of gauge that that's going to be 12 to 10 weeks out. So just some sort of comprehensive health check. Most of the time, at least I'm, I'm making sure that they're pulling some sort of thyroid panel. Um, and then if it's a female, a comprehensive hormone panel before PEDs get deployed, because going an HRT route rather than a PED route is very impactful. And I've seen a lot of success with it within my female clientele. So we'll see this like lab work need be kind of variant upon how hard someone adapts across a prep. But for most, somewhere in that 14 to 10 week out mark is where we're getting most of our labs pulled. Um, and it can help with the deployment of compounds, right? Like this is, uh, this is a pet peeve of mine. I know we're kind of out of the transition phase, but with that HPA adaptation, so you, you pull your pre-transition phase lab work with a female that's off of PEDS. I'm going to be making sure that they're, everything's within the ratios that should be normal, right? And this will be contextually dependent upon when does a female ovulate? What do their phases look like? Do they have different length phases? So the general consensus of pull between day 21 and 24 is not always great, but you can use that if you would like. And then, so create this framework. And then as we get into prep, how much is that changing when we get into prep? So then we're kind of checking to see how much HPA adaptation is occurring. And this will kind of suggest what we're using moving forward as far as like compound selection, HRT practices, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of other sort of objective biofeedback or biomarkers, would you look at like things like blood glucose or blood pressure or you mm-hmm. know, rate, that kind of thing? Yeah. So big ones are BP, blood glucose, resting heart rate. A lot of times across the prep, blood glucose tracking starts to become a little bit not that important because they're waking up low most days anyways. Um, one of the big ones that I'll find is, uh, it's going to sound gross, but like a Bristol stool chart, like a stool quality assessment, really important because we can start to catch issues before they become a, before they crop up. 
Um, and then like obviously sleep quality is like some of the main markers that we're doing from a objective and subjective basis, right? Because uh, sleep quality versus sleep duration are two different things. It's important to track both. Yeah, because wasn't there, I can't remember the name of the, the type of assessment they did, but there is a study where they compared like objective sleep quality data with the subjective data of the actual subjects and it correlated very well. So people had a very good awareness of how well they slept anyway. Yeah, exactly. And so like that kind of information is why tracking both is important because like someone sleeps eight hours and they write that on a sheet, but they feel like shit when they wake up. It's like, mm, probably not the best eight hours of sleep, right? What are we doing wrong? So it's kind of important to use that. Oh, and here's something. For the love of God, please don't use things like Delta-8, THC, things like that to sedate yourself if you can help it. Um, there's some pretty suggestive data that things like the Delta-8 are going to skew the cortisol pattern where you'll wake up with elevated blood glucoses in the morning. A lot of times you'll see people will take this kind of stuff and then they kind of get this little bit of a heart race before they're trying to go to bed. And then it relaxes them to the point where they fall asleep again, sedation versus quality sleep, but also from like an impact standpoint on a prep can be pretty negative. So don't use their. Yeah. And sometimes people use these things to mask how terrible their sleep hygiene is. So it's probably better to address the, the main factors that would contribute to good quality sleep before you kind of start adding anything in like that. Absolutely. Um, and I've even seen impact from a physique presentation standpoint, because there will be some hormonal influence, especially with like smoking weed. Um, I've actually had a client, I won't name them, um, where this was recreational use was pre-bed pretty much daily. Once I convinced them to pull it, we clipped off like 12 pounds in like 12 days. Wow. So like there was a pretty marked change within that. Right. So even though it may be something you consistently do across a prep, it might be something to consider not, not having. Yeah. It's kind of like a creature comfort that people like to have as like something, yeah, something safe, but yeah, definitely a consideration. Just, just anything that's going to like impact your physique or your fatigue or your energy levels in any way during a prep has to be really carefully considered because you're going to be so hypersensitive to any sort of change in, in variable. <laughs> Which when we bring it back to the pre-prep phase, like that is 100% like at the end of the day, what it's about. How many variables can I take out of play that may be impactful in a negative manner? Because if we can do that there and then just do it across prep, it makes the management of a prep so much smoother for yourself or as a coach for the client and whatever it may be. Um, and even from a, communication standpoint like if you're not a great communicator in the off season make an effort to communicate better within this pre-prep phase because you're really going to need to be able to communicate when it comes time for prep um and so having those types of things in line really just just it's like the cherry on top right it's like the last little bit that can really just make a prep 100 and uh, i see it every time yeah, just have all your ducks in a row before you begin. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing we didn't touch on was duration. Like, how long does this phase last? Uh, for a lot of people, somewhere around the six to eight week mark is pretty, pretty good. Um, I've had some people go as long as 12, just because it takes a little bit longer to get some life variables in play. 
or the timelines might not fall exactly right for the show they're targeting. Um, I've had some as go as low as four, but it's also changed the way that I finish the off season push. So it, it kind of knowing that's why it's important to know this little timeline and have it mapped out because in my opinion, four is not enough for most, but there are exceptions to the rule where we can kind of start to see these metrics kind of come back fast and stuff. So for most, it's going to be somewhere around that six to eight mark, um, but play it on a case by case. Yeah. And then if it's shorter, you kind of would probably do a taper from the off season kind of leading into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. That was a pretty comprehensive overview of the transition phase. I don't know. I don't think we left anything. I think we covered pretty much everything. I think we even dove into some contest prep stuff too. I think it's just kind of, here's an information dump and go use it, guys. Gave you um, even more than you signed up for, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you just go off on tangents because there's so much to explore and it's obviously such an interesting topic that it's kind of hard not to delve into other, other areas of it. But no, it's definitely really, really interesting and there's just so much to consider. I just can't help it. <laughs> so factorial it's like my brain starts going in all these directions I know so. you have all these branches off into all these <laughs> topics and everything I know I'm the same it just goes mad in my head um yeah. but thank you so much Luke for coming on to the podcast I really appreciate it and it was a really really good conversation I think a lot of people find this very interesting and very very helpful so to plug yourself because you are coming to the UK next month yes. in March so on the 20th of March Luke will be hosting a seminar in FLF gym, which is actually my gym in Manchester with um, team pro coach, um, kind of like a physique based seminar. Um, mm-hmm. I think you are, what are you talking about? Is it PEDS and prophylactic use? I think. Yes. PD usage and prophylactic usage across different phases. Perfect. So if people want to get a ticket for that, how do they go about that? Yeah. So it's on my site, just noswitchfit.com. I've also got the link in my bio there as well um we're also doing a second seminar in rotherham the following weekend the 26th and 27th so you can check that out as well that'll be with jordan shallow and the prescript crew so um i'm gonna be in the uk for three weeks fighting super excited it's gonna be able to get to meet a lot of y'all and train and do all that so it's gonna be a lot of fun do you have any other plans apart from the two seminars yeah, so once the work part's over, my wife and I are going to go up to Edinburgh, and oh, I can't nice. say it. So Edinburgh. Just, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go up there the day after, and then we're gonna take a sleeper train from there to London. Oh, so, lovely! That'd be so nice. Yeah, so we'll get to explore a little bit while we're over there. That'd be nice. If you need any food recommendations, hit me up because that is my forte. <laughs> I absolutely will. We'll probably talk about it as soon as we wrap up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they can go onto your website, but where can they find you otherwise? Is it mainly Instagram where you provide your content? You have a yeah. as well. No switch fitness. So is Instagram is the YouTube page. Um, we do YouTube videos pretty much every week. Um, and then we have the no switch fitness podcast as well. All of your general podcast streaming. Um, I'm also an educator for J3 university and I do the J3 university podcast with John as well. So if you guys haven't checked that out, make sure you do. We do a lot of good information on there as well. Um, so yeah, I have my hands dipped in a lot, but it's a lot of fun. I'd recommend I am enrolled in J3 at the moment. I would highly recommend it. It's a very good course. <laughs> I'm, I'm really it's a, it's an honor to be a part of it and just to be a mentor in that role as well. So 
Yeah, it's very cool. For anyone who wants to kind of get a full idea of being a coach for like bodybuilding purposes or for com- competitors, it's a really good, like comprehensive view of everything you need to know. So I would recommend checking it out. So, yeah. So if you guys tune in and you do enjoy the podcast, please take a screenshot of it, share it to your story, tag myself and Luke. So it's at Holly Davidge and at No Switch Fitness. We'd really appreciate it. And thank you guys so much for watching or for listening. Um, And we will catch you next time.